Please introduce uh, our guest today for Bitcoin Book Club, uh, someone who I've listened to you talk for hours on end. Um, you are owed a debt of gratitude from a lot of Bitcoiners for the way you've pushed forward and asked everyone to pick up and read this book by sharing the PDF and making sure we got this. I love it. Um, I'm a big believer, and I read this quote one time, to always make sure you, you remember and thank those who introduce books to you. So, Robert, I first wanted to say thank you for introducing The Sovereign Individual to all of us. CK, thank you for giving me this copy of The Sovereign Individual that I have read as well. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and joining us for this discussion. Yeah, guys, thank you for having me. On the Bitcoin conference, I should mention, I'll be giving out some free hugs too. So if anyone wants to go ahead and get tickets now, that's on the table. Um, <laughs> to uh, the point you just made there, I have to actually thank CK. You know, CK, I, I've told this story before, but I think he was probably the third guy to mention the book to me, but he was the guy that pushed me over the edge and said, no, like you need to read this book now. And man, was he right. You know, this really... I think gets to the bottom of the way the world shapes itself. It's all based on the economics of force, right? What there is no property that is yours if you cannot protect it. So, you know, digital technology is a real game changer and Bitcoin is kind of the tip of the spear in that respect. Absolutely. And I know that, uh, you know, we will dive into some of the predictions and forecasts that the book made i do want to for those who have not had the chance yet to read the book before we dive in i believe it was published in 98 or 96 but essentially this book was published before the dot-com bubble even popped right and there are so many little tidbits forecasts that are made that it, it's almost as though they came from the future to write it in the past about what we're witnessing here right now yeah, it's truly incredible. It says in here, 1997, when it was copyrighted. 97. Sure. Yeah, so I'm sure it was written in the years leading up to that, you know, 95, 96, 97. And it is staggering, you know, the, I think within the first 50 some odd pages of the book, they predict social media, which they call narrow casting rather than broadcasting. They predict Bitcoin, which they call anonymous digital cyber cash, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, there's several other predictions. One that's very relevant right now is they predicted the use, the state leveraging, let's say, of a pandemic to reinforce the validity of their borders once they started to see the writing on the wall. Um, and, you know, the more time that passes, the more prescient this book proves to be. So, and yet, I should say too, this was a gateway, the book was kind of a gateway drug to me to its bibliography, which is there's a long literature, just like when you get into Bitcoin, you kind of discover Austrian economics. I think when you discover this book, you see there's this literature behind the sovereign individual on the economics of organized and disorganized violence and mm -hmm. what that has looked like across time, how technological realities change those economics, and then how those changes percolate up through society and how society is organized and shaped. And it's almost like it's a very very foreign, strange concept, like especially when you first hear about it, the economics of violence sounds terrible and obscure and scary or something like that. But when you really, I think, spend some time with it, it's kind of the better, like it's, it's human beings expressing the territorial imperative, which all animals have in this social institution called property. And property is premised on defensibility, right? How, how much does it cost to attack versus defend? And that determines the shape of our socioeconomic system. So it's really, it's very close to the bottom of how we organize ourselves, which I think makes it super interesting. If I could jump in too here and, you know, Robert definitely has gone a lot deeper into this book than I have and going into the bibliography and reading the books there. But, you know, I've, I've chewed through this one and, 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 and kind of just processed it. And really the basis of the argument is that you know, throughout time, technology has changed the cost to defend and and profit from violence. So defend against and profit from violence. And as those kind of like, you know, capitalistic forces kind of shift based on based on technology, uh, that has shaped society. 
and they paint the picture of the past and those shifts in the past that, you know, shifts that were introduced by gunpowder, shifts that are introduced by steel and iron and things like that, shifts that are introduced by farming. And then they start kind of like setting the, the picture for what could happen into the future, given these new technologies that are being developed, especially in the realm of networking and cryptography, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, it really is a very holistic book where it helps you understand the concept through history. And then it tries to help you understand like what is going to happen in the future. And they were so incredibly directionally correct on so many things, including Bitcoin, including border closures that we're seeing today post-coronavirus. Like it's, it's honestly jaw-dropping. I do really quickly, I want to avoid saying the C word because apparently our stream got kicked off of Twitter for a little bit because we did talk about one of the strains and whatnot. So well, let's just call it the endemic or whatever, but word of caution. I want to I want to start from the beginning because they do an excellent job, as CK pointed out, of of helping you establish what human history is like. You go from hunter-gatherers to the agricultural age. We move on through the gunpowder revolution and then the industrial revolution to where we are now uh, in the information age and, and or the transition into that. And in each of these iterations, they kind of explain this circular nature of violence and how it's used and who is sort of controlling it and how it's being controlled. I found it fascinating that even the first switch from out of hunter-gatherer to um, the agricultural age, there was still violence occurring human man amongst man even when they were simply using violence to survive they were also using violence to sort of enact power or say like hey i don't like you you're out you're done and we have this sort of fossil history to showcase that what are some things that you guys took away from this discussion of the history of violence that you see is is being repeated now or that you you sort of see the uh the rhyming of history happening before our eyes yeah i think one I mean, you mentioned gun, the gunpowder revolution, which was a really big deal. There's a period that they talk about in the book where the armed knight on horseback was the law of the land. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting thing there, too, because the knight himself, a very heavily armed knight, very expensive to procure that armor back in the day. You know, they, they translated it to inflation-adjusted dollars. I want to say it was somewhere in the ballpark of sixty to 100000 maybe for the, the suit of armor. And for a while, actually, the knight was pretty useless. He couldn't do a lot because until the invention of the stirrup, actually. So that simple little stirrup that allowed the heavy knight to be mounted on a war horse, all of a sudden gave the knight on horseback, like made him the martial force of the land because he gained mobility that previously the armored knight just didn't have. So that that's one example i think of a minor technological change just the invention of a stirrup all of a sudden promotes the knight on horseback to be like the the dominant weapon in the land but then they go on and so that that led to the rise of chivalry as this moral code you know knights were kind of like the enforcement arm of a lot of these these feudal lords and whatnot you know a single knight could effectively take on you know dozens of peasants right it just you know one guy versus 40 no problem but they chart again another historical change with gunpowder is that upon the invention of gunpowder, all of a sudden you went from situations where a knight could contend with, you know, like I said, dozens of peasants in armed combat to a situation in which a single peasant at 200 yards with a rifle and gunpowder could take out a knight. So this, again, another technological change that, that gave the, the ability to project power back to the hands of the consumer in a cheap way, like something people could afford. Gunpowder was much more affordable than the suit of armor and the, the knight. I'm sorry, the knight, the suit of armor, and the war horse. So you went, it's this weapon, or the weapon, dominant weapon of the land went from being this super premium product that very few could afford to being this common gunpowder thing that a lot of people could afford. Totally changed the nature of combat engagement and therefore, uh, you know, restructured society and property rights and all these things led to the downfall of feudalism. Um, and with it, which was also interesting, the moral code of chivalry, because chivalry was just like this useful fiction that knights were using. And then all of a sudden, when that useful fiction smashed into practical reality of gunpowder, it just shattered, it was gone. So I think that's a really good lesson on how 
even our morality percolates up from the technological landscape we inhabit. One other thing that you mentioned there, like just saying, let's just say the C word, you know, they talked a bit about this too. They talked about censorship, right? When, when the Gutenberg printing press was invented, the church initially wrote it off, you know, didn't, had no concern about it. So it goes on proliferating the cost of book production and reproduction gets lower and lower the dissemination of knowledge on the back of this, you know, so basically we're starting to have this cognitive revolution, right? People are learning to read, they're gaining direct access to the word of God, whereas previously they used church representatives as intermediaries. So there, and once the church saw the writing on the wall about the printing press, they actually tried to censor the printing press. And the book makes the great point that when you try to censor subversive technologies, it just causes them to be put to their highest and most subversive use. So when they were trying to censor the printing press, like people actually started producing books on how to produce a printing press. And this, it like drove the proliferation of this idea of this innovation even faster and harder. So it's, for me, it highlights the self-defeating dynamic of censorship in the modern age, um, or really in any age, frankly. It's like if people want something and there's an authority that's actively trying to disparage it, dismiss it, censor it, stop it, it almost highlights or reinforces that want. You know, people start, it draws attention. People are like, why are you, like today we have the IMF telling El Salvador, hey, stop the Bitcoin standard thing. If they actually thought Bitcoin was dangerous for El Salvador, they would just cut El Salvador off and ignore them. They wouldn't try to censor this network, right? If they actually thought it would fail, if they actually thought it was harmful. So that was another angle. And then I guess you could say that was also summed up in the Streisand effect, which is something we talk about in Bitcoin where Barbara Streisand yep. didn't want her house photographed. And then now it's the most photographed house in Malibu or something like that. So it just, it's important to understand that censorship, I think just doesn't work in the long run. And that's especially true, it seems to me in the digital age. And we're seeing that sort of with the Rogan thing now too. People are calling to censor Rogan. And what does it lead to? More people listening to Rogan. Um, I do, I do want to let CKU answer that, but I, I also want to sort of, bring up something that even in this example in the two examples you shared we talk about like a frankly at that moment in time those inventors of of the component for the war horses or creating the printing press or interchanging the blocks within the printing press to make it more efficient these little changes in the technology allowed for such an astronomical gain and stride to be made and we watched civilization change as a result and like I would, I would honestly compare Bitcoin to be that very small. It's not a very long line of code versus the code at Microsoft or the code at Apple. And it is going to be a profound exponential change that we're just bearing witness to now. But that's my little soundbite, CK. Same, uh, same question that I presented to Robert to you. Well, I want to, I just want to talk about the Bitcoin compared to the printy press example, something that wasn't necessarily talked about in this book, but I've uh, studied just in other reading that I've done is the printing press enabled literacy to become something that the common person had. And that actually changed like the nature of the human brain. Like you can actually track literacy and then like what parts of the brain are active and what parts of the brain grow more and are more useful. So like the, like technology, like kind of changes humans too. And like, just like the, the printing press spread literacy, I think like, Right now, we live in a world where the Fed and we just watched the FOMC meeting uh, where we waited with bated breath as the priest of the economy, Jay Powell, you know, intermediated with us, you know, what is going to happen and how the economy is going to work and what rates are going to be and the cost of money, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we now have Bitcoin, which is spreading financial literacy across the globe. And we're going to see the central banks and these institutions that are tied to the government, you know, really start to be ripped away from their power strictly because Bitcoin is enabling financial literacy. And I personally can reflect on like, I am so much more financially literate than I was pre-Bitcoin. And I was already a pretty financially literate person as it was. Like I got into Bitcoin because of personal finance, um, because of my financial literacy. So uh, I, I truly think that like Bitcoin will have a very, very similar like effect as the printing press, both in taking down existing institutions that we are forced to trust, as well as actually changing our brains like significantly. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really insane to see. 
Alex, I know that you are probably the best expert as far as printing press goes of this panel right now. I don't know if you have any thoughts that you'd like to contribute to this discussion. I think you guys pretty much covered it. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think it's just an important vessel for language, like CK said, and making language and information free and as economical as possible. Like these innovations have just gone a long way to bring societies up together. Um, and I, I think uh, the only thing I could add is that um, I, I think that copyright and sort of intellectual property battles hinder us as a group. And I would invite people to think about how and why when something such as the printing press, the internet and Bitcoin, you know, really um, create incentives to allow people to collaborate from all over the world together. And, and there's nothing more important than that. I mean, that's how all good things get built. So that's all I'd say about that. For sure. I do want to, as much as I love the book, I do have some issues with it. And I want to touch on one of them in particular. And that being sort of this the way that the metaverse and just the information age at large is introduced draws this assumption that unfortunately has not come to fruition, where the internet and the access to that information is going to be decentralized. Uh, unfortunately, however, we're bearing witness right now to big tech and the way they have overreached over the last 20 plus years. We have, what, three different companies that really own and handle the entire internet mainframe right now. So my question essentially is, do you see that being an issue to the long-term goal of creating sovereign individuals? If so, how do we solve that? And if not, why? So I, I'm going to just jump in with a quick defense of the book, and then I'll let Robert jump into uh, probably a more in-depth explanation. But what I would say is that, one, the book does kind of address this because they spell out stages of the internet age unfolding. And they actually spell out this kind of like weird in-between stage where human beings kind of need a lot of these companies and intermediaries and uh, legacy institutions to kind of be this in-between layer. And then they kind of spell out a final stage, which is mostly built on this kind of like permissionless and decentralized and encrypted stack. I think that they were pretty bullish. They were calling like, you know, by the, the early 2000s, like this is deep in. And, you know, it, obviously we're in 2022 right now and we're just seeing kind of a lot of these early transitionary phases into that kind of final stage. But we're absolutely, they, they spelled out this like middle stage where we're kind of in between the informational age and like where we were, you know, during the end of the, the industrial age. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yeah, I think that this is actually not out of the norm for when a lot of industries first emerge, we typically have this kind of monopolistic push early on. Like you see this with with railroads, you saw this in steel and oil, that some player comes in and in, in an effort to standardize the industry, you almost there's an advantage to being kind of a natural monopoly early on. But then after that, and again, this is different than a legal monopoly and that it's not legally imposed. It's just kind of like an Amazon situation. He was just kind of the first there. He established these network channels for distribution networks online. And you basically create a, a network effect insulated monopoly or what I'd call a natural monopoly. That has happened with industries early on historically, and it, it adds an efficiency through standardization. But over time, those standardizations become commodified 
And so you see it, you know, today we, we have a less centralized railroad, railroad service and other things like that. So I think these data monopolies we're dealing with now are a step towards a truly decentralized internet infrastructure, which you need something like Bitcoin for that to exist. You know, you need a layer that you can move economic value on without permission, 24 by seven, cannot be stopped, that enables microtransactions. This whole sailor laid out this thesis on in the sailor series about the the orange check and the blue check and the green check on twitter you know it's all of that basically reintroducing skin in the game to digital discourse is how you improve the quality of that discourse right just like in real life when you like right now the cost of being a prick online is zero right you can go online on twitter and just say whatever douchey thing you want and there's no there's no repercussions there's no cost just the cost of a tweet but you do that in real life you go up to somebody and start you know bitching them out or calling them names you know you might get punched or your reputation might take a hit something like that so i think absent bitcoin we weren't able to move that dynamic that that physical world dynamic into digital space you need something some mechanism that creates skin in the game for participants in the digital economy so i think you know it's just a i guess it's still theory at this point but the promise of Bitcoin is that it will sort of revivify these old promises of the decentralized internet, you know, letting people own their own data, monetize their own data, self-serve, self-sovereignty, all of these things. So the book did, you know, it didn't point to that. The book also identified Bitcoin sort of, but also thought it would kind of be pegged to gold somehow. So it didn't see the direct monetization of energy. And I think it also just didn't see how something like Bitcoin would enable a truly decentralized web architecture, although it did it did hypothesize that we would get there eventually. You muted. <laughs> to, uh, I, I want to stay on this topic for, for a brief second. While I do recognize that there are steps to get there, my concern, my largest concern is unfortunately the nation states, our centralized government, our U.S.'s government getting their hands all over the internet, whatever these new policy changes are going to be, not, not even discussing or thinking about what they want to do with crypto and Bitcoin strictly through the lens of the internet. Does the nation state's involvement inhibit our chance or opportunity to get to a fully decentralized network, um, sp again, strictly through the lens of the internet? So, I mean, I guess right now I'd say it's a huge, huge attack vector, but the existence of something like Bitcoin in terms of like internet sound money is the, it, it is the reason in order to start fixing that. And that reason has never really been, the incentive has never been strong prior to this point and which is why it's centralized. Uh, but Bitcoin is this reason to have your own server at home. Maybe that server has a capability of doing some other things and just continuing to build from there. And, you know, ultimately Bitcoin is the reason why we're, you know, trying to put satellites up in the space. Bitcoin is the reason why uh, we're trying to experiment with ham radio transactions, why off-chain transactions using encryption. There's a lot of things and like secret sharing. There's a lot of like innovation that comes from the fact that this is an attack vector that Bitcoin is actually pushing forward because it's so important now more than ever to uh, be able to do this you know, in a way that uh, does not rely on the centralized infrastructure. Now, I'd say that this is also true for energy and Bitcoin is kind of a part of that. And, you know, this is where the Bitcoin narrative kind of overtakes, you know, the sovereign individual per se. But I would say, generally speaking, when I think of the sovereign individual, I think of it as the best book about hyper Bitcoinization. So I really do think of the book as from a very Bitcoin perspective. I would just echo again here that the more censorship is applied or the more machinations of the central bank or the nation state in the digital economy in general, let's say, whether that's, you know, applying pressure on these data monopolies to enforce certain regulations or what have you, this can be detrimental in the short run. It can give the state leverage in the short run. I'm sure they're going to try, they're going to try their best to adapt to this reality, but my my money would be on the market basically out competing and out innovating analog age institutions. And the more, the, again, the, the real dynamic of play here is the more an analog age institution attempts to push censorship, regulation, control onto the digital economy, the more demand they're creating for censorship resistance. And so where demand goes in an uninhibited marketplace like 
like the internet, I think supply will go, right? So if there's demand for a thing, people will will create the thing, frankly. And and there's been we've seen small examples of this. We saw like when Trump got kicked off Twitter, Telegram had 25 million people sign up the week after. You know, so you're seeing these little indications that every the visualization I have is like they're trying to push water. You know, you try to smash one mole or push one bit of water in one place or plug one hole in the dam, whatever your analogy is, and three more leaks pop out of the dam, you know, where the water flows elsewhere. So, you know, as I said in the conclusion of one of my recent pieces, I think the big theme here is we can view the ongoing digitization of human interaction as just like the disruption of coercion itself. Because like, if you can't fuck with me or my property, like you can fuck with my physical person, but it's much harder to fuck with my property in this world. So therefore you have less attack surface on me. I have more options. I have more freedom. So that's, that's like the big theme is that coercion is just a less effective wealth acquisition strategy in this new world. It's less profitable. Yeah. <laughs> just to put it plainly, like coercion is less profitable because of digital value and then encryption. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of combination of the, the digital space becoming very valuable your ability to own that and use encryption to protect yourself and that being costless effectively, that pretty much is a domino effect, which starts really changing how we organize. Right. And that's why I really like the part of the book, which the historical context is necessary, but I, I really like getting cosmic and thinking about what does the future logically look like and how does it logically play out given what we have? Uh, that's where, again, I think the book really does an excellent job of, you know, explaining hyper Bitcoinization. You know, a part of that is this idea of country competition, which I think is so insurmountable and, and jur- jurisdictional competition and arbitrage, which is just so paramount to, I think, is like the Bitcoin thesis. And we're starting to see it play out both with Bitcoin and with uh, El Salvador adopting Bitcoin and trying to bring in Bitcoin, attra- attract Bitcoiners and appease Bitcoiners kind of political demands almost. It's really like jaw dropping to see you know, this jurisdictional competition and pleasing of sovereign individuals by a jurisdiction really play out right in front of us, uh, you know, this past year. Yeah, I mean, the you said it best, the first example of this sort of environment or location, city, state, whatever you want to call it, that's going to try to appease a new crowd of people and have an inflow of immigrants come in because they're offering a certain type of protection, a certain type of taxation, a certain type of whatever that these this group of people all align with. And that's sort of the, the largest theme from the sovereign individuals. We're going to I don't want to say it in this way, but we're almost going to go back to sort of this tribal mentality where you you will see different tribes that prioritize what they want to prioritize, and they will go off and sort of live their life as they see fit and allow for each sovereign individual community to essentially like operate fully fleshed out and not not allow for outside influences to dictate what they can and can't do. You both kind of touch on this a little bit where we, we talk about sort of property, how it was created back in the agricultural age. That's when we sort of, or the agricultural revolution was the first iteration of real property ownership and rights and the rise in violence as a result. Robert, you touched on how expensive being a knight and sort of instigating this violence was at that time period. And CK, you've now just mentioned sort of the cost efficiency of actually being violent versus sort of being a good citizen. My question to you both is, what does it cost? What is what does cost efficient violence look like in the digital age? The sovereign individual touches on different components of hacks, um, cyber attacks, and whatnot. But what what are things that we need to be prepared for as far as violence in this digital age? Yeah, I can jump in here. So, um, yeah, the way CK put that is probably the easiest way to think about it. It's like, what is the profitability of violence or coercion? It doesn't have to be. That's the other thing. We use this word violence a lot. It doesn't always mean like someone hurting someone. It could just be the threat of hurting someone, right? Which is which is what all politics is premised on, by the way. There wouldn't be a political hierarchy in the world if property could not be violated. So the way to think about this is if everyone in the world were somehow like an invincible economic actor, right? Assume we still have limited lifespans, but we just die of natural causes after 80 some odd years. But we can't actually physically hurt one another or steal from one another, just as a hypothetical assumption. In that world, politics don't matter at all. Like, I don't like your opinion 
whatever you think about abortion or climate change or any C words or P words, or whatever, doesn't matter. It's like, you can have your opinion. You can't impose that opinion on other people because they are in, invulnerable, right? You can't steal from them. You can't hurt them. So in that world, the cost of defense is effectively zero, right? Like there's no cost. You're just invincible. I can't be hurt. No one can steal from me. Bitcoin is effectively a technology that moves us further along that spectrum. Like it lowers the cost of defense. You can now defend your capital in this immutable monetary medium that's really expensive to steal. It's impossible to inflate. So it is one of these momentous innovations that moves us along that spectrum towards cheaper defense. So, which is to say it makes violence way less profitable. Now, the consequence of that is that, okay, people have a big incentive to move their wealth into Bitcoin, especially as inflation increases, right? We, the nation state increases taxation or inflation or taxation via inflation. They're creating more incentives for people to hold their wealth in uninflatable money or hard to tax money, which is Bitcoin. This is then depressing the nation state revenue mix, right? They only generate revenue from taxation and inflation. So the more they try to now impose the, this form of non-mutual, non-consensual revenue, they're actually pushing people into a medium that they can't generate revenue from. So the, the big punchline here is centralized organization of violence. The revenues are going to be declining for that model very rapidly. So what this does is it opens up the possibility and the opportunity for disorganized or direct violence, which the book does talk about. So people may be more vulnerable to extortion, right? If you're just holding, and this is really important with Bitcoin, if you're just holding your single signature key at home, then you're vulnerable to the $5 wrench attack. You better wise up. I mean, I'm not saying it's an immediate threat right now and there's some big scary thing, but this is the world we're moving into. You should probably consider putting it in a geographically distributed multi-sig or some other non-single point of failure custody arrangement. The other thing that's weird about the digital age is that it looks like identity, like state-based identity is going to be less and less relevant. So you'll be able to earn an income, you know, independent of your state ID. Maybe you have multiple IDs for different, you know, participation in social forums versus earning an income, et cetera, et cetera. So in that world, there's going to be, I, you know, it seems like there's going to be all kinds of weird cyber attacks and people trying to either gain access to those identities or the wallets they have access to and things like that. It just, we move into this world that is much more wild, wild west, but with a real digital uh, overlay, you know? So I guess the, maybe the wisdom to take away from that is like, just don't, just be prepared to provide for yourself in areas that you're traditionally provided for by the state. You know, like if you think you can always just call the police to solve your problem, like mm, that's probably not a, as good of a strategy in the next two to three decades. You know, you need to have guns at home. You need to have, you need to think about where you're driving and what information you're providing and how you secure your information, how you secure your Bitcoin, all of these things, you know, just with, with, this is in the title of the book, The Sovereign Individual. Sovereignty means power, right? You have power over yourself. You have power and options like no individual has ever had in human history. Well, with that set of power and options comes a lot of responsibilities, right? You have to make sure that all the, you know, proverbial T's are crossed and I's are dotted. 100%. With great power comes great responsibility. And Bitcoiner, again, is a is an excellent lesson in this and just like this nature of encrypted digital energy is that, you know, it's encrypted. And if you mess it up, that's it. It's over. And that level of personal responsibility is so much stronger, forces you to get off exchanges. It forces you not to trust third parties. It forces you to take personal responsibility and potentially roll your own custody, roll your own distributed multi-sig. And again, I think that this, this is a catalyst for moving into this digital age. And it's it's so important to, again, when you read this book is to think of it from the Bitcoin, with with the Bitcoin reality in, in your perspective and, 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 and just kind of view it that way. I love thinking of this as like the Bitcoin hyper-Bitcoinization book. I will definitely be presenting that as my attempt to orange pill more people. Uh, but I want to discuss a little bit, uh, Robert, you touched on the idea of the way central governments and nation states have been taxing us, it's highlighted throughout the book uh, how taxation has just essentially been a form of income for these nation states, and they make more money on that now than ever before. And this was, that is literally the way it is said in the 90s. And 
today in 2022, they're making even more by taxing. Just last year, I believe it was in May, they tasked, they, they being the UN, agreed upon a global minimum tax rate to avoid sort of companies hiding business entities that in Ireland in particular, I know that was a big one. How do you envision sort of this battle? Because we've witnessed it happen where there is a, a nation or an area that has lower tax rates. People and businesses were using it to shelter money. Bermuda continues to be a tax haven for so many people. And yet at the same time, the US and other countries continue to overreach. How does that stop? What ends that cycle of uh, increasing taxes so that these nation states have more money and in turn have more power? Yeah, there's, um, there's a book on this called Seeing Like a State. And in the first chapter, they describe this push. Well, actually, states derived this from scientific forestry. There's a bit of a story there, but basically to improve the aim of the taxing authority is to improve the legibility of taxpayers. So they want to know where you are, what you're making, what your wealth is, who you are, who you interact with. Like they want to see a flow chart of all the economic stocks and flows, right? That's that's what makes taxing easy because then all of a sudden you know where the money is, where the wealth's being created. You go in, you apply a little threat of force and you say, pay me 40% of that or else. And that's how taxing works, right? So it's the more efficiently you can increase the legibility of an economic network, the more profitable taxation ultimately is. So I think what we're dealing with in the digital age is that if a state uses, as China is doing today, if you use technology sufficiently well, you can create this very high legibility tax base, right? If you're living in China right now and you're transacting everything on their, what's it called? The master app that they use, it's got payments, ID, movement, all that. Then it's very easy for a technocracy like China to just tax directly from, through this app, basically, right? So it's the point being digital technology enables the nation state to tax much more efficiently and therefore make taxation much more profitable. The counterforce to that is something like Bitcoin and encryption, right? That you can actually hide, you can move, you can become infinitely illegible to taxing authorities, right? If you hold all of your assets in non-KYC Bitcoin, for instance, no one knows how much money you have. You can move it anywhere. You can do anything, right? If your identity is non-state based and you have multiple identities doing different things, then you're very, you're invisible effectively. So that seems to me like to be the big struggle is like we've, we figured out all this digital technology really fast in the grander arc of history. And now like the power centers are scrambling to try to get in position to deal with a new reality. So, and you know, CBDCs would be a great point here. I think it's not talked about enough at all how the very concept of CBDC emerges as a direct response to the threat of Bitcoin. Like you'll never hear a central banker say this. It's like, they act like they just came up with this on their own. Like, oh, we just need to make this new high-tech money to make everyone safer and better and add financial stability and insert platitude here. When in reality, it's a competitive response to a disruptive technology. It's like, here's a technology that makes a central banking business model zero effectively in the long run. What are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to double down. We're going to try to have fiat 2.0. So I would expect to see a lot more efforts from centralized institutions to that effect. Another one was like the IRS proposing to have visibility or legibility into all bank transactions over a certain amount, $600 or whatever it was. So you're just going to see these antiquated, what I call analog age, which is everything pre-digital age institutions and business models, I think fighting for survival or fighting for relevance or viability in the modern age and try as they might, just like try as the church did, there was a counter-reformation, you know, there was a reformation and there was a counter-reformation by the church. I think we'll go through a similar thing, you know, like sovereign individuals will start to reorganize themselves into more efficient, empowering models, right? Where you, you're not taxed as much, you have more freedom, more options. There'll be some, some pushback from states, but where I get, again, the, when I just look at it game theoretically, it's like the more pushback they supply the more impetus they're creating for people to move onto these, move onto digital rails, basically to preserve their identity and capital and whatnot. And once you're there, you're effectively, you're largely invulnerable to coercive measures. So I just see it as like trying 
to analog age institutions trying to exert more control, but as they squeeze tighter, people effectively slip between their fingers into this digital ether. And once you're there, like we know as Bitcoiners, like once your money's there, it never leaves. You're like, I have total peace of mind. My money goes up every year, pretty much over four year cycles. What would ever cause me to leave being in, in denominating myself in Bitcoin? So that's how I see it playing out. So I want to like echo something that Robert said earlier when he was describing the church trying to censor the printing press, because like, I think what's going to happen here is, you know, these entities, these states that typically have a way to hold down your property effectively. There's always these stories of like Russians being able to leave with a hundred dollars in their pocket when they're trying to get out of the country and things like that, you know, with Bitcoin and digital property and encryption, you can leave with all the information in your head, right? There's no way for them to vet that. It's really like your property is so much easier to defend. And as people are effectively fleeing, these institutions are going to squeeze down on what they can, which is centralized institutions, which just like when the, the church started squeezing down on the printing press and like the places where that existed, people started printing instructions on how to make more printing presses. So, you know, what that's going to do is you're going to see what happened in India and China is like, hey, they're going to clamp down on Bitcoin trading. Okay, well, now all the trading volume leaves Coinbase. Maybe like you shed 30% of it, but that 70% of volume now goes to P2P, right? And you see that in China, all the volume is happening you know, yes, it's happening on surveillance apps, but, you know, they still can't stop that. They can't stop people texting in, you know, characters, right? And it's just so difficult for uh, this stuff to get centralized. And the more that they try to centralize it, uh, like Robert, you know, beautifully articulated, you know, it slips through their, through their finger, you know, their finger crack. So it really is, I, I think uh, Bitcoin Tina put it really well, Bitcoin and encrypted value is like water, you can't stop it and it gets everywhere. Like ultimately you can't stop water and it's gonna get everywhere. It's gonna seep into every aspect of life and in Bitcoin and encrypted value is gonna do the same thing. To kind of add on too is, you know, part of this is like the centralized entities that are companies, right? A lot of values held in companies, you know, we're seeing companies, big companies getting squeezed uh, by, by countries to enforce uh, mandates on their employees and things like that. And I have a thesis that with Bitcoin and with self-hosting, we're going to see a lot of powerful com companies take their capital, put it into Bitcoin, put it into the digisphere, and then start, you know, effectively diversifying away from mean institutions in order to create more censorship resistant institutions. And I think the earliest forms of these are like the pirate gray market exchanges. So we've seen BitMEX, we've seen Binance, we've seen a whole laundry list of these like, you know, uh, Seychelles based, you know, exchanges that anyone can VPN into trade, you know, their digital value, make gains, lose gains, not pay taxes, and then, you know, exit. And these institutions have demonstrated an enormous amount of defendability against U.S. state actors who historically have been able to shut down countries. Now they can't shut down BitMEX. So I think that like this, again, change of logic of violence on a company level, on a like medium-sized organization level, like people don't really talk about it enough. I definitely think it was talked about in the book. I don't quite recall, but I think that, you know, we can already see like, you know, what if Block really does become a true multinational company, 100% in Bitcoin. And then they start to do things that are a little bit different than the status quo of big tech company. You know, something like that could happen easily. And if they hold their own keys and they manage their own servers and all of that stuff is distributed across the globe, like we're going to start seeing like some really funky, powerful entities, maybe not seen since, you know, the East India Company and stuff like that roaming the high seas. Robert, you kind of touched on a little bit about, you know, all these businesses that stem from the analog age are going to have to figure out how to get, how to survive, if you will, in this information age as we, we move on from the digital age uh, or we move deeper, I'm sorry, into the digital age. We witness, it seems like every single week, a new merger, a new acquisition. I know you kind of talked about how it may run similar to what we saw, the transition out of religion and into the nation states. Do these large entities that continue, these large conglomerates that continue to eat up different industries and different businesses one by one, does that, what effect do you think that has on the overall ability to create sovereign entities and sovereign individuals, as well as just 
what effect that has on Bitcoin at large to have these conglomerates continue to grow. Yeah, I think a lot of the growth in these large multinationals and large corporations in general, a lot of it is driven by the fiat currency complex. You know, we like clearly zombie companies would be the most obvious one. These are just perpetual loss producing enterprises that are kept on life support by by being subsidized by the taxpayers. So they're being subsidized by theft. It becomes a lot harder. The whole concept of subsidy becomes a lot harder and rarer in a world where money cannot be printed ad infinitum. So, you know, I think it's kind of like what CK said. I think either CK wrote a piece on this or someone talked about the BitMEX thing where they were effectively anti-fragile to all these regulatory attacks because they're in Bitcoin, right? And they're a digital business. And it's like, you swap me down in one jurisdiction. I just, you know, do the paperwork and file into another one. And the assets, you know, they're hyper mobile, they're hyper liquid. So you can just move them basically in, in a keystroke. And so this idea of virtually unstoppable liquidity, I mean, that any business or any individual that's making use of that is just really hard to contain in any type of analog regulatory model. Like you can get the physical person and put them in jail, but that's about it, you know? So if you're not vulnerable to a single attack vector on a single individual, you've got one CEO holding all the keys or something silly like that, then you're pretty resilient and robust to a lot of these attacks. And so maybe it's like, you know, sovereignty is something that's always in high demand. I think everyone wants to be in control of themselves and their fate and their situation and, uh, you know, have power or have resistance to the opinions of others. You know, everyone wants to be free, I guess you could just say. And Bitcoin, like to, to have sovereignty historically, you needed an army or a militia. You know, it's very expensive to raise the capital and organization necessary to really be sovereign, right? To be a sovereign state which is, you know, the US, I guess, would be the most sovereign country in the world today is the global superpower because they have the largest military and Navy. That's a very expensive enterprise. But now with something like Bitcoin, again, because cost of defense goes down so much that all you need to do now is like run a full node, right? Maybe you don't have necessarily the same level of sovereignty as the United States, but you're much closer for almost no cost. That's in high demand for everyone, every individual, every business, every nation state, every social organization you can formulate in your mind that humans put together. The organization is put together to accomplish some aim and to accomplish that aim, it needs to be free and independent of the opinions of other individuals and organizations. So that is sovereignty, right? That's something that will always be in high demand so long as people value freedom. Bitcoin just makes it really cheap, right? So I, I just don't see how that doesn't penetrate every mode of human organization and then in doing so really reshapes it you know i don't think you'll have these large in a world where we have large multinational conglomerates that are feeding off a fiat currency complex that's now collapsing and they start to move over into bitcoin that changes the organizational structure of that enterprise because especially if it's a zombie company right all of a sudden if it's producing losses well then it's going to dissolve the parts of it that are producing losses will dissolve capitalism will take hold right um, so just by changing the money that's being used, moving on to this system of unstoppable liquidity, I think it starts to true up a lot of the bullshit in markets today, a lot of the distortion, a lot of the fiat distortion, let's say. So what I'm really interested in, and we've seen like, let's just call it, we've seen like the offshore out of the U S kind of gray market exchanges really emerging. I really am excited to see the first US-based or European-based institution that's heavily regulated, but they find themselves on a Bitcoin standard. I'm really excited to see one of them like effectively dissolve unprofitable units, kind of unplug from the fiat system and actually like decentralize themselves and make themselves a little more anti-fragile. That's That will be a spectacle. I think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. Um, I really think that this this uh, shift in violence is something that is like inescapable. And it profits to operate in the in the new paradigm. So I just think like the profit motive of getting on a Bitcoin standard is going to be huge. And then the next step is like, oh wow, well I'm on a Bitcoin standard. I don't have to bow down to bow down to you, what you're imposing on me. And there are methods and jurisdictions that are going to enable entities, individuals to start kind of like applying leverage in their direction. Uh, for once because of this uh, this technology. And I think a great example of this is El Salvador. You know, IMF telling El Salvador, stop what you're doing. And the president of El Salvador 
um, tweeting about them to mock them. So like that's leverage. That's more sovereignty than they had before because of this digital encrypted energy. I would just add there too, every one of these loss producing business segments that dissolves, that's going to increase aggregate wealth in the world. So this is a whole, there's a whole other positive externality to Bitcoin. It's like, not only are you making property much harder to steal and violate, but you're also creating more aggregate wealth in the world, which means everyone's becoming richer as a virtue of moving on to Bitcoin or hard money. So that, you know, we further reduced economic scarcity, which further reduces the incentives to conflict. It's like, not only is the money or property really hard to steal and violate, but there's less overall scarcity in the world. And so there's less to fight about, like everyone's economically better off. So that's really important as well. I want to spend some time on this because I love CK where your head is at on let's let's build a company up from the ground purely on the Bitcoin standard so that to Robert's point, it's not tied to this fiat system. To break it down for those who like me, these conversations went over my head when you were having these the first time I listened to your sailor series, but and correct me if I'm wrong, if I misunderstand my assumption, at least, or my conclusion that, you know, these zombie businesses and, and the conglomerates are essentially part of the fiat system due in large part because you get a loan from a bank, or if you do, you're backed by the bank in some way, some degree. And so the bank now is tied to you. Their credit line that they've given you has increased the monetary supply. And as a result, they stand to benefit if you win. But if you lose, they are really the bag holders and they do not want to enter bankruptcy without some sort of an asset tied to it. So what, how do we start businesses from the ground floor on a full Bitcoin standard? Does it mean we have to be spending the Bitcoin to essentially build that? What does that look like? Well, I mean, there's a million ways to cut it. I suppose I'll just speak to the business I'm currently running. Like it's, you know, podcasts, written stuff. We're going to start doing some live events. So it's effectively a media company, hold treasury in Bitcoin, try to, you know, we were profitable in Bitcoin terms every month. So we have positive Bitcoin cash flow. I pay some of my vendors in Bitcoin. If they want to be paid in Bitcoin, I pay others in cash. I have banking with NIDIG. So I have their, you know, their Bitcoin friendly bank, right? I can do, do it whatever way I want. I could borrow against the Bitcoin. I can send the Bitcoin, receive, swap it for dollars if you need to. Although clearly the incentives are very aligned against that. I try to never sell Bitcoin. And I think that's one way to cut it is you just start using Bitcoin. <laughs> and then depending on the nature of your operations, like we're pretty much fully digital business that gives you a lot of options on how to structure the entity itself to be very tax efficient and, you know, just take advantage of, of jurisdictional arbitrage in general. Yeah. What I would add to is that just the, the cost to leverage jurisdictional arbitrage with Bitcoin goes down significantly. And this is where I previously mentioned, you know, it is going to become so financially lucrative for fiat businesses to offer financial services to Bitcoin, uh, that it's almost like the Trojan horse, you know, they they want to seek the profit, they see all the profits are being made in the exchange space, they want to have their piece two of this pie, they're going to service it. And ultimately, they're creating the gateways for liquidity to exit a dying, you know, corpse, you know, we talk about zombie companies, you know, we're living in a zombie economy. Mm -hmm. So exit the zombie economy and enter into really like a very excited, very um, energetic, very productive economy. Like you see the velocity of Bitcoin is going parabolic, whereas the velocity of dollars is, is you know, dropping, you know, to the floor. So people aren't using dollars. The dollar system is not working. The fiat system is not working. It's just breaking down completely. And because Bitcoin works, because Bitcoin is sound money, uh, we're seeing it just continue to show signs of health. Uh, so as it becomes financialized, um, more and more people will be able to jump on and then take their take their value and exit with it. So uh, not everyone's going to do it. Not every company is going to do it, but it's going to be a trickle and trickle. And, you know, again, as they squeeze, more people will be incentivized. So this is really, you know, I think The Sovereign Individual is a book about game theory. It's like the game theory of violence changing and uh, how technology affects that. And when you think about how this is going to play out, you know, Robert and I have talked about game theory over and over again. Yeah, I mean, we're even witnessing 
uh, to go further back about nation states trying to control power, we saw last week Brazil offering a, a discount if you pay your taxes in Bitcoin. You see, uh, and this won't be the first, nor will it be, this won't be the last uh, nation state trying to figure out sneaky around about ways to accumulate Bitcoin without point blank saying, hey, we printed more money and we're going to use that printed money to buy Bitcoin. Although Jerome Powell, if you're watching this, feel free to print more money and just go buy Bitcoin with it. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wish you did that for the last two years. And they will. They will, because for a nation state, it's bounded downside and unlimited upside to make that decision. So perhaps they haven't realized how serious the situation is yet, but they will. You know, at a given market cap for Bitcoin, a nation state or nation states will decide, they'll run the calculus and decide, hey, I can print this money at zero cost and acquire this money that costs something on the marketplace. It seems logical for me to do that. Even if I, even if it's just as a means of defending myself against the success of this network. And once one nation state does it, other nation states see it, they run the same calculus and it's a feedback loop, right? Because now that nation state A bought it, nation state B is going to evaluate the chances of Bitcoin success a little bit higher. So their allocation will be a little bit higher, so on and so forth. Hyper-Bitcoinization. I, I do want to stay on this topic of game theory. I know Alex and I spent a good amount of time at the beginning of this uh, show today talking literally about the prisoner's dilemma, witnessing Russia go back and forth on their Bitcoin stance. But before we do that, CK, you gave me a thumbs down on telling Jerome Powell to print money and buy Bitcoin. Why? I, I know they're going to do it eventually, and I just want them to take a really long time. Give us plebs a chance. Give the smaller countries a chance. You know, we, I want them on their knees first. Okay. I can, I can understand and respect the idea of let us, let us accumulate. And then when the time comes, then you can get involved. Um, but back now, I want to talk. Let's go full circle on today's episode, Alex. Prisoner's Dilemma, Game Theory. We're watching it happen right now with Russia. We're, we've essentially exited the sovereign individual conversation. I know we got five minutes left. So I, I do want to dissect what we're witnessing in Russia. Uh, Robert, do you sort of have thoughts on how that game theory is playing out? I like to say it's the game theory with Russia is Russia, US. Those are the two countries we, we seem to move in step with what they're deciding. So yeah, I don't think I actually said a question, but <laughs> the question I want to ask essentially is how do you see Russia playing this out and what steps do you envision the U.S. taking based on if Russia gets involved in mining, what is the U.S.'s next step? Yeah, I think the mining arms race is a pretty obvious one, right? This kind of harkens back to the space race. <laughs> uh, once Russia's doing something technologically, we're trying to compete with them on that front. And, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on right now. It seems like there's just a lot of chest beating between the U.S. and Russia, and Russia seems to have some alliance with China. And the general theme I'm detecting is that um, I just did a long-form series with Balaji on this. 20 years ago, it was pretty certain that you could not defeat the U.S. in, in a hot war. Today, it's less certain, right? So it's just, if you think about it like a, a hierarchy of, of chimps or something, right? The head chimp is looking a little bit weaker. And so the number two and number three chimps are thinking, well, hey, you know, maybe I don't need to walk on eggshells quite as much. I can, you know, beat my chest and push on the Ukrainian border and, you know, do all these things that the head chimp might not like. That's what I'm detecting. But again, the more, a good way to think about this is the more geopolitical upheaval there is, there's more uncertainty in the world. There's more social entropy, if you want to call it that, or geopolitical entropy. And like that creates more demand for something that's very certain and very safe and independent from all of that mess, which is Bitcoin, right? But it doesn't matter what law Russia passes or China passes or the US passes, none of this affects the Bitcoin network or the Bitcoin hard cap. So in a world with more uncertainty, I think you create more demand for the certainty, you know, the pristine certainty, if you want to call it that, of Bitcoin, right? It just, it's available 24 by seven, 21 million fixed, nobody can stop it, very simple. No matter what's going on in the world, actually, the more that's going on in the world, the more you want this thing that nobody can mess with. So, awesome! I I appreciate it. CK. Go ahead. No, I got nothing. Well, uh, I uh, I know we we're about to wrap up now, but Robert, this discussion has been 
truly incredible, kind of a dream come true for myself after listening to so many hours of What Is Money. Um, if those of you who are not familiar, please take the time to go. Uh, Robert has an incredible podcast series. It started out you just interviewing Sailor, and it's transformed into something truly, truly remarkable. Um, thank you so much. I don't know if you wanted to plug anything or share anything else that you're working on right now. No, thank you guys so much for having me. You know, this book is I guess we should also mention it's not a very fun read. It's kind of dry, kind of difficult. Um, but, you know, as we've laid out here, it's very worthwhile, I think, for the world we're moving into. And uh, as far as plug, you know, you can find me on Twitter at BreedLove22. Links to all the show stuff is there. We're putting out like four to five episodes a week right now. It, I'm staggered and humbled how quickly it's grown. We're almost at a million monthly downloads as of this month. So we're one of the biggest podcasts in Bitcoin. And, you know, we're just trying to educate people. I just, I, there's this quote from H.G. Wells, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And that's what got me started down this path really hardcore that I thought I would just devote all my energy to the education side and try to stave off catastrophe. So that's what we're doing. Thank you for doing that work because we, uh, all of us who are your students really appreciate it. We are all students, but thank you very much. I want to throw a shout out out to, to, uh, for me, my favorite article that Robert has written, which is the number zero or Bitcoin and the number zero. And, you know, very few things that I read really like just completely revolutionized my world perspective. And that was one of those articles. So um, along with what is money, along with uh, the sovereign individual, along with uh, everything else that we've recommended, you got to go read or listen to an audio form. Bitcoin and the number zero is just such a phenomenal um, way to see that like the the evolution uh, that is Bitcoin to how we organize and how we, you know, kind of make ends of, you know, what's happening in the world. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. We've given you a lot to read, but that's what Bitcoin Book Club is all about. So you guys have your, your reading for this next week. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks, guys. Yep. 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 Yep.